War is terrifying, and for many soldiers, music is one of the only ways to escape. In the arms of the angel, Somebody like Sarah McLaughlin would just be kind of like the polar opposite. You know, it's like, this is as far removed as I can get in this environment. And so I can just close my eyes, put in my earbuds, listen to this music and escape into a very different place. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the soundtrack to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But first, the Soul Masters was an interracial soul band from Danville, Virginia, formed in the 1960s. Jerry Wilson and John Irby were the two lead singers. They were African-American, and the other eight members were white. While the Soul Masters never got a big-time record deal, they did produce two original songs that brought black and white audiences together on the dance floor. Producer Matt Darrow went to Danville to talk with Jerry Wilson as he reflected on his three years with the band and what it was like touring the South during the height of segregation. I... Uh started singing when I was uh, 16 years old. At high school, I was going to John M. Langston. Uh, we used to have talent shows. And uh, this young lady came and got me one day and said, Jerry, let's participate in a talent show. And so I said, okay. You know, and we did a song called Don't Jump Out of the Skillet Into the Fire. <laughs> that was back in the uh, 60s. And anyway, it went like... Um, you see those playboys looking at you, baby, dressed in fancy clothes. But I'm just a working man, baby, and to you is where my money goes. I know you know it. They get excited when they flash their big bag of gold. But will they go and We got so much applause, so much applause, and I, I was just flabbergasted by it because we wanted the talent show. And one day, uh, these white guys came and asked me, well, how would you feel about singing with some white guys? And I says, well, you know, I never have, so try it. You know, we, when we played at home, it was an energy that would feed back and forth, back and forth for four hours. John and I used to put on a show. We used to keep the people spellbound, you know, when we when we would perform. John had a unique voice, high, real high. And I was the one that would deal with the crowd back and forth. I feel like God has given me a talent to move a crowd because when they're out there on the floor, I realized they didn't have any worries. Whatever happened, they left it at the door. And they may have went back to it, but on that dance floor, you couldn't see it. first place we played in Danville was the Rathskeller. And that was the first time we played in a, in a white setting. And John went into the bathroom just before we changed clothes, and he, he wouldn't come out. So I didn't know this was going on, but he was afraid to come out to play before white people. And Wayne went in to talk to him, and I didn't find out till later what happened. But he says, I never played in front of white people before. He was afraid. But I was looking forward to it, uh, you know, because... I knew that we could perform and we were going to be good. And man, they were, they was just, it went off. I'll tell you a situation that happened that was really bad, man. I mean, it was really bad. 
we were playing at North Carolina State, and it was um, it was a fraternity that got us there, but they were mostly athletes. And uh, <laughs> so we had a ballet with us named Otis Garland, and he and I went to the bathroom, and it was this guy in the bathroom. He was really drunk, and he started calling us this and that, and. Uh, and so I said, Otis, be prepared, man. This is a big guy. I said, we might have to put him on the floor. And so as he was walking towards us, about five football players came in and said, is this guy messing with you guys? And we said, no, everything's all right. They said, no, 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 he's messing with you. And uh, Otis and I left out the bathroom. But when this guy came out, he didn't have a tooth in his head. They beat him pretty bad, man. And I felt really bad for the guy because he was drunk. I didn't want to see that happen to him. I enjoyed the mixed crowd more than the segregated crowd because it made me feel like I was doing something. The Soul Masters was my way of saying, I'm contributing to this whole thing. And John and I used to talk about that a lot. We used to talk about how did they allow black and white people on the dance floor at the same time. But it was the music, it was the, and it was us getting along and, and we transferring our energy back to them and they transferring their energy. I mean, I, I, I feel good about how many people we, touched in those three years that I played, how many people that can come and tell me a story. It was just, it was just like every day with the Soul Masters was a sunny day. That's the way I feel. That was Jerry Wilson speaking to producer Matt Darrow about his time with the Soul Masters. Our ability to escape reality through music is one of the great wonders of the human experience. And we all have that one song that eases our troubles and soothes the soul. My next guest says this musical superpower is a lifeline for soldiers during war. Lisa Gilman is a folklore studies professor at George Mason University and the author of My Music, My War, The Listening Habits of U.S. Troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. Lisa, you interviewed 35 American veterans about their listening habits when they were deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Did they listen to a lot of music while they were over there? Yes, that's such an interesting question. When I approached people while I was doing this project and I'd say, hey, can I talk to you about music? One of the things I just heard over and over was like, yeah, totally. Music was huge. And people literally just described listening to music almost 24-7 or as much as they possibly could, which was something that I wasn't expecting when I started the project. What were the circumstances that let them listen to so much music? Well, so these wars happened at a time when we were undergoing a really huge transformation in technology. So if you think about it, you know, we used to listen to music on CDs or mixed tapes, which required carrying objects with us that were rather large and limited. But these wars happened at the time that we had this huge transformation in technology where suddenly we had the MP3 format, which allowed for music to be saved in these very small formats that allowed for people to have MP3 players and computers and have like tons and tons of music on them. So not only could they bring a ton of music, but the MP3 devices were really small and as were earbuds. So even when people were on patrols or missions or sleeping or hanging out with a lot of people, they could really easily put in earbuds and listen to music, um, sometimes without other people even knowing that they were doing so. Did you find certain songs kept popping up over and over, even though these were not friends who were there at the same time or in the same group necessarily? Well, it was like more like genres. So a lot of people would describe listening to like heavy rap or metal genres or um, there's, you know, certain really patriotic songs that kept coming up. One of the main ones that I just heard over and over and over across everybody that I interviewed was the song by Drowning Pool, Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. 
Had you ever heard of it before they described it? No, I mean, I hadn't heard of it. I have to say that part of this project was, you know, I I don't listen to a lot of the same kind of music that they listen to. So I spend a lot of time, you know, getting online. Fortunately, the same music transformation that made it possible for them to listen to music made it really easy for me to go and listen uh, and try to, you know, kind of understand what they were talking about. I want to play Bodies by Drowning Pool and just give people a feel for this song they were referencing. Wow. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's such an interesting song, you know, and so many people said that, that, that this was the anthem, you know, this was the song that, that that was really the anthem for these wars. And at the time that I was doing this research, there was a lot of talk in the media about soldiers and troops from different branches listening to these really heavy genres. And the media really was portraying these like badass soldiers, you know, listening to this badass music and going out and being badasses. And one of the things that really came up in my interviews and that I'd really like to emphasize is that the people I interviewed were all like human beings, right? And being at war is hard and scary and sad. And so a lot of the times when people describe to me listening to this kind of music, like say when they're getting ready to go out for a mission or when they're hanging out with other people in their units, they would talk about using the music to try to get themselves to feel and be the person that they were supposed to be. So if you're going to go out on a mission and you're supposed to be like, you know, a scary, physically dominant, fearless person, well, the the person who's going out to do that is just a human being with feelings and emotions and they are often worried about whether they can do what they're going to do or they're worried about whether they're going to die or whether their friend is going to die. Are they going to be able to protect their friend if there is an attack? And so they would describe using this music to try to get themselves into the psychological state that they needed to be in to go out and do the job at hand. So that's a very, very different version of the story than kind of badass dudes listen to badass music to go and be badasses, right? And I think that's something that that I was really trying to get at with this book is, is really humanize the experience, really provide some more story and information about who the people are who went out and were fighting these wars. You mentioned how eclectic their personal playlists were that they would listen to privately, one of the songs that kept coming up was people were listening, or at least a few of them, to Sarah McLaughlin's The Arms of an Angel. Mm-hmm. Such such a surprising song for soldiers in war. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when I first heard soldiers describing listening to things like that song i was you know i was a little bit surprised but it, but then when they started talking about it it made a lot of sense so to give you a couple of examples um you know one person said and this i heard a lot was we're at war you don't have a lot of control over your environment right so when you have a job like I get to leave my job and come home and be like, whew, I'm glad I'm not at my job anymore. I'm going to talk to other people. I'm going to do other things. I'm going to go exercise. I'm going to go watch a movie. But when you're at war, you're just there. Like you you might not be on a mission anymore. You might be back on base, but you're surrounded by exactly the same people you were on the mission with. You can't leave. You can't, you could, you know, it's really limited. And so they were in a highly masculine space, right? There's like, there's war, there's a lot more men than women. There's a lot of aggression. There's a lot of, you know, loud banging music. And so somebody like Sarah McLaughlin would just be kind of like the polar opposite. You know, it's like, this is as far removed as I can get in this environment. And so I can just close my eyes, put in my earbuds, listen to this music and escape into a very different place. You interviewed mostly men, but a few women also. Was it only the women who were playing Sarah McLaughlin? It was the men who were playing Sarah McLaughlin because for (laughs) women listening to women's songs, like the idea of being 
a woman didn't have that same separation from their environment for them because they are women. So they didn't, you know, like they, it was kind of interesting. It's like for the men, listening to women's songs makes it feel like they're kind of in a different space. For the women, women's songs wouldn't have that same role. Let me play that piece just a second to remind us of how different the mood is. It's also really melancholy. And, you know, you imagine somebody missing home, feeling a little bit distressed, maybe missing a partner or something. And so the song allow, you know, can allow somebody to really kind of sink into into their melancholy, you know. And you feel also protected by her. I'm enveloped in the arms of an angel. You're right at a time when you have no control over your life or death to wrap yourselves in such a song. I totally understand. It's like you're, you're in the most vulnerable position you can possibly be in. And so, and having a woman be the, you know, I mean, the mother, the safety, the comfort, you know, I mean, it's not, it makes a lot of sense. What about the women? Were, were their listening habits different from the men? I assume they were. Yeah, they, well, yes and no. So they listened the women that I interviewed um, did listen to a lot of really hard genres, and a lot of that was there's a lot of pressure on women in the military to live up to standards of masculinity, right? They're questioning right. every second that, why are you here? You can't do this. You don't belong here. And you are a sexual object, and can we please be with you? Or, you know, there's a lot of sexual harassment and assault that happens. So for women in the military, especially at war, it's really a difficult place to be in. So some of the women that I talked to really emphasized how much they listened to really heavy, hard genres, partly as a way to prove to themselves and the people around them that they were indeed manly enough to be in the military within the ways that, the, you know, gender is constructed and expected in that space. And then one person in particular who was in the Navy um, just described, she dealt with a lot, you know, really intense depression and trauma while she was on this ship. And so she would talk about just going into her birth by herself, this tiny little space she could go into and and listening to really intense music that sunk her deeper into her depression. And, you know, men did that as well. Um, but the level of pressure on women in those spaces was even greater than for men. That's interesting. It sank her deeper into her depression. And I think that's really important. And I write about that a lot as we talk a lot about the positive effects of music, that people can use music to control their moods, to feel better, to manage trauma, to manage stress. But a lot of people I talked to also talked about using music in ways that were bad. I mean, bad as in like to make them feel worse. Like it's not unusual for depressed people to listen to music to make them, you know, the, to, this going to spiral them sinking deeper and deeper and deeper in as much as people talk about using music to try to get themselves out. So both things happen. Talk a little bit about the patriotic songs you were mentioning earlier. Was that fairly common? And what sorts of songs were they playing? So... During the wars, if you might remember that we had several, um, a lot of country music and country artists were putting out music that was very pro these wars and patriotic and pro troops. So somebody like Toby Keith was particularly, particularly known for this. Um, artists sometimes went and performed for the troops. So one of the particular songs was um, Red, White, and Blue by Toby Keith. So this was very widespread. Lots of people mentioned um, listening to Toby Keith and this song in particular. It also features in some of the YouTube videos that they made. One of the verses is, and you'll be sorry that you messed with the U.S. of A. Because we'll put, put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Started shaking her fist and the eagle will fly and it's 
one of the funny things or ironic things is, is that people would mention listening to country artists like um, the Dixie Chicks. These are artists who were actively producing anti-war songs, but troops would listen to them and the overall genre of country music was became associated with patriotism. So they would associate the music as patriotic music, even though the songs themselves and the artists were singing anti-war music. So then I also knew, I had people that I interviewed who were like, I can't listen to country music anymore because... I associate it with this kind of pro-war stance and I am now, I, I don't feel like what we did was justified and so I can't even listen to this music anymore. What did you learn personally? I mean, just real profound understandings of what it was like for these people to be fighting as such young women and men? Yeah, the, I mean, the experience was really, really profound for me. Um I went to high school in Clarksville, Tennessee, which is where um, Fort Campbell Army Base is located in Kentucky, but it's right on the northern border of the city. And my high school was right next to the base. So, you know, I spent time on the base. Um, My friends were all mostly Army brats. Um, A lot of my friends went into the military. So I came into this project knowing that the people who join the military are just, you know, human beings like me. And that's, you know, that they make the choices for whatever reasons they do. But often it's because that's kind of the path that's available to them when they're graduating from high school or or are young people trying to figure out what to do next. At the same time, as I realized I had a lot of preconceived ideas about the troops that I don't think I knew that I had. And so when I just started interviewing people, I was just struck by how incredibly thoughtful and articulate each person was about the real complexity about what it means to be in the military and to go to war. And that didn't matter what somebody's political perspective was. It didn't matter what the reason was they went, why they selected to join the military or how they felt about their war experience. That was very, very varied. But each person was just extremely thoughtful and intellectual about what it meant to them as an individual and and kind of the profound impacts it had. And so every single interview, I would just kind of leave and be like, oh, I need a few hours now just to kind of sit with this information. And I was just so honored that people were really willing to talk to me. The other thing that was really interesting is the focus on music. So when I started the project, I thought, well, I'm going to go and ask people who have been to war and I'm going to say, hey, I want to talk to you about music. They're going to say, that was, that's really trivial. Why do you want to talk to me about music? Like this was war. And what I found was the opposite. I would say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about music. And they would say like, yeah, that's a really important topic. I have a lot to say about this. But the other thing I found was that by asking questions about music, I was able to provide an opportunity for people to talk about their war experience where they maintained a lot of control over what they shared, what they didn't share, how they shared it. If I had said, hey, will you tell me about your deployment? You know, tell me about going out on missions. People have been like, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> like, why am I going to tell you that? Um, these are really <laughs> difficult stories and I don't know what you're going to do with them. But instead I said, well, tell me about music. Do you have a memory associated with music? Then they could self-select what they're going to tell me about. And they could tell it to me where the focus was really about the music. And so in the end, you know, people shared incredible stories with me and things that they probably would never had told me about if I had approached it in a different way. You write about a rapper called Soldier Hard and how his music helped veterans adjust to civilian life. Will you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so Soldier Hard, um, it, the, the artist's name is Jeff Barolero, and he is just an amazing human being, and I think everybody should go look him up <laughs> right now. Um, so Soldier Hard, he was deployed, and he was a musician before he went, and he brought some of his equipment for producing music with him, and he talks about how when he was deployed, he survived because of music, and he has this incredible story of being out and three of the people in his unit dying and him he witnessed that and he 
you know, was incredibly distressed and how he came back into his room and then just started producing music to work through it. And then other people in his unit were also having a really, really hard time. So he invited them into his room and they just spent time producing music for hours as a way to kind of deal with this. After deployment, he and some other veteran artists developed this group called um, the Red Con where they basically created a website and started producing music and drawing an audience in of other veterans, specifically with the goal of addressing veteran depression and suicide. And I ended up interviewing multiple people who described Soldier Heart as saving their lives. Literally, you know, two different people told a very similar story of being alone at night and really distressed. One had a gun in his hand and was, you know, ready to kill himself and somehow came across a video by Soldier Heart called Road to Recovery. And it's a really profound video. And it like it's a video about a song about somebody and the, he, he presents himself as a protagonist in the video where he is about to commit suicide. And then he kind of figures out the value of his relationships and how much he cares about his his wife and his children. And at the end, he's cooking at a barbecue and there's another veteran in the background who is obviously really distressed. And he goes over to the to this person and kind of puts his hand on his shoulder like, I'm going to I'm going to help you. We're going to get through this. I interviewed two different people with a very similar story, but they ended up like coming across this song and just listening to it over and over and over, sobbing and sobbing again putting down the gun. And then some of them, you know, they reached out to Soldier Heart and and interacted with him. And some of them got to meet him in person. And they really credit Soldier Heart with saving their lives just through his music. Lisa Gilman, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much for having me. I, I think it's really important that we continue to talk about these issues. And especially given that we have wars going on right now and people are facing some of these things right now, it's important that we continue to really bring visibility to what it means for the people who have to fight the wars. Let's close with a song by Soldier Hard, the one you mentioned, Road to Recovery. You see, I've been through it all, from fighting in wars, but it died for freedom, that's a real good cause. I said yes, cause the mother said no, there's a war going on, give me right for let's go. They trained me to kill, yeah, they called me the kill machine, now I'm out, look what this war did to me. Lisa Gilman is a Folklore Studies and Public Humanities professor at George Mason University. She's also author of My Music, My War, The Listening Habits of U.S. Troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his disabled younger brother Robert. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Meet Virginia's new state folklorist, Katie Clune. Katie says her passion for folklore and folklife stems from growing up all over the world as the child of a parent in the foreign service. You know, growing up, and moving between cultures where you land as an outsider, but through experiencing culture, begin to understand the people who surround you. For me, those points of connection that can be birthed through a textile or visiting a museum or learning a little bit about the importance of a national dish, like those are those kind of searing moments of relating to another human based on something they love and something that likely came out of their home or how they were raised. Like, I, I just get most excited about the opportunity to grow cultural understanding between people. Your first folklore project revolved around the Laos immigrant community in a small town in North Carolina. Tell me about those people and their story and how they came there. Absolutely. So when I was moving from Washington to North Carolina in 2013, my parents were moving to Vientiane, Laos. My dad was appointed U.S. ambassador. And I was coming from the textile museum and knew that there was a large community of Hmong people, an ethnic minority from Laos, living in western North Carolina. And I thought initially I could do a project around Hmong textiles 
and textile traditions in North Carolina and then compare it to Laos because I wanted to really spend a lot of time in the country if I could. And what I came to fall into through, you know, real serendipity and something I'm endlessly grateful for is I ended up meeting um, through a volunteer at the museum, a woman in the Lao community. We met at a Hmong New Year's festival and took a walk around. And what really struck me, though, is she invited me to her sister's restaurant after the festival and served me sticky rice and papaya salad and beer lao. And just the way I saw her sister, Dara, decorating the walls of her restaurant with musical instruments from Laos and photos of monuments and the way the menu was so lovingly explained, I knew there was something really special going on here. You wrote a beautiful piece about the culture this family left behind as some of them swam for their lives across the Mekong and years later ended up all together in North Carolina. It was about the marketplace they left behind. And as I read your description of it, I felt that sense of joy and loss. The amazing thing about this project for me was that I got to spend, you know, several visits with the family in Morganton and the restaurant and their home, experiencing their family traditions at the temple that they helped establish and I didn't fully appreciate the depth of the traditions that they were enacting in North Carolina until I had the opportunity to spend some time in Laos. And I actually, I remember the moment that this notion that food is the sensory landscape of Laos hit me and it tied together how it was foodways that connected the three spheres of this family's life and really rooted them in the strength of their cultural identity and also created a means like Dara did through the restaurant of sharing and talking about it with others. And so if you like, I can read a little bit of this. Please. In the city streets of Yenchen, smoke rises from grilling fish, chicken, and pork. Lower to the ground, vendors turn soft and short bananas evenly over charcoal. A fruit vendor rings his bell as he bicycles down the street. There is no explanatory sign or text. The gleaming fruits declare themselves on their own terms. Red and spiny rambutan, green raw mango paired with spiced salt, and pale, chewy yellow corn gleam from behind the glass. Venture just beyond the urban center and the landscape opens into lush rice patties. Green papayas hang on drooping branches just steps from the kitchen and the mortar and pestle that will pound flavor into their flesh. I love that, and I love your writing. I feel like I'm right there. You also have a clip that I think is so beautiful of a singing tradition, both in Laos and recreated in North Carolina by these families. Yeah, so one of the things that was so special about this project was I had the opportunity to witness in person what families in Western North Carolina were recreating or recalling about you know, the original home traditions in Laos. And one uh, example is the contrast between the full temple life in Laos and the temple established by some elder community members in North Carolina. And you can really hear it here when you compare the sound of novice monks chanting in the early evening in Luang Prabang, which is the old Buddhist capital of Laos in the north of the country, and a similar ceremony happening on, um, I believe it was Lao New Year in Morganton, where you can hear that the voices are, th are fewer and they're older, but they're still hearkening back to their past and to the home temples they remember when they grew up in Vientiane. Let's play first the monks singing in the home country. And now let's play the singing by the older men in Morganton. Also beautiful, right? And you can see what they've lost and what they're recreating. And I think it plays out most in these, um, you know, these are chants and Pali, which is 
kind of similar to Latin for Catholicism. It's probably one of the more challenging traditions or pieces of the religion for the next generation who are not raised in the context of Laos and that formal training in the monastery to to capture. So I think that's also what we're hearing there. You also interviewed repair professionals for the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Tell me about repair professionals and what you loved about that. The Repair Professionals Interview Project, uh, which was funded by an Archie Green Fellowship from the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. It was something I schemed up with my friend and collaborator, Julia Gartrell, who's a sculptor in Durham. And it's a little bit different from the um, fieldwork I did with the Lao community in Western North Carolina, because instead of going into a very deep cultural identity, we're choosing to explore repair professionals from any given background and honestly in a variety of niche specialties. So we received funding to do 20 oral history interviews with folks ranging from a third-generation African-American plasterer, a cobbler in Raleigh, to ceramic restoration specialists in Greensboro, a Black luthier, which I learned he was one of the only Black luthiers practicing at a street that intersected with my own in Durham. So again, this project was a wonderful excuse to talk to people and get into their workshops and, you know, see what they were making and fixing. Let's play a clip from Horace McKee. He's one of the fellows who does ceramic repair. Working with your hands opens your mind. There's a strong connection between your hands and your mind. And it's not something that is demeaning. It's not something that's beneath you. It can expand your understanding. He's like a sage of his business, right? Absolutely. He had a very philosophical approach to making a livelihood by working with your hands, as you heard. And I think he really kind of hit on one of our primary interests in this project, which was to make clear the inherent satisfaction there is in repair work and also in the pride that comes with knowing that your set of hands and your brain may be one of the only in your county, state, region that knows how to do what you can do. I know you're so new to this job, and mostly you're on a kind of listening tour, reading, talking to people, traveling. But what are some fresh ideas that have popped into your mind just in the first few weeks about things you might want to do with the Virginia Folklife Program? Um, just the other day, I had I was visiting my future in-laws in Virginia Beach and realized that I don't think the Virginia Folklife Program has ever talked to a surfboard builder in the state. Yeah, that's a great idea. There is something that's been going on for a number of years. It's called the Virginia Folklife Apprenticeship Program. And the idea is take somebody who repairs fine ceramic plates or someone who is a luthier, that sort of thing, and help them and exalt them as they are training the next generation. What I've been proud to recognize as I come into this position is that this year's cohort of mentor artists and their apprentices will actually be the 20th. And so I'm going to use the sort of 20th year of the program to uh, pause and also reflect on who both geographically and background and tradition we've served and what gaps there might be. Virginia has resettled a lot of people from Bhutan, and I'm interested in learning a little bit more about that community and what traditions they're practicing in the Commonwealth. Katie Clune, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. Katie Clune is the new director of the Virginia Folklife Program at Virginia Humanities. Coming up next, a wild goose chase and a woman buried alive. Back in the early 1980s, Grace Tony Edwards developed Radford University's first Appalachian folklore class. 
It was later taught by Ricky Cox. Now they're both retired and here to reflect with me on some of their favorite student-led oral history projects, which have all been digitized at Radford's Appalachian Folklife Archive. Grace and Ricky, you both grew up in Appalachia. Tell me some of the stories you heard as children. Oh, dear. Well, my parents were both storytellers. One in particular that I recall my mother telling was about her dad, who uh, went across a mountain to visit his girlfriend. He was courting a young woman that he eventually married. And, of course, he walked because that was the mode of transportation back then. Well, as he was going home that night, he heard suddenly some, what sounded like a a vast beast of some sort moving around. (laughs) He said it sounded as if it had iron hooves, and it sounded really big. So his solution to try to avoid this thing was to climb a tree and and watch and see what happened. Well, as the story goes, this beast, which was a, a horse-like creature, came <laughs> and settled itself underneath the tree where he was and stayed there all night long keeping him trapped in the tree. And at daybreak, it supposedly just vanished. So that was the story that uh, my mom used to tell us. And I think it was probably a cautionary tale to tell us to stay out of the woods at night or we might be sorry. And then you also have a story about a home remedy. And a lot of times home remedies are something we think of with folk life stories Um, This one is about getting rid of warts, and everybody's sort of got a different version of this, right? Yes, yeah. Um, So you want me to tell my wart story? Please do. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) When I was quite young, probably about five years old, I had a whole bunch of warts in the palm of my hand. And so uh, my parents took me to a wart doctor in the community where we lived in. At that time, Sunshine, North Carolina, this man asked me to name every wart by the name of an actual person. Well, that was hard because I was a little tyke and I didn't know all that many people. But I finally managed to get through naming everyone a different person. And I suppose the theory behind this is I was giving each person one of my warts. <laughs> Not a very nice gift. But uh, a few weeks later, the warts had disappeared. Actually, within the last month, I was talking with a friend who is now 92 years old, and he was remembering uh, having some warts removed in his childhood, and it involved some objects that... Uh, I've heard dish rags and other things, some something that you have to use to, and you touch the wart with that, and then you, you hide that or throw it away. And I forgot what he said it was, but he said that he, he did what he was told. He touched each wart with this, this object, and he hid it, and he knows today where he hid it. He said, I still remember. And I wanted to ask him, where he hid it, but I was afraid the warts might come back, so I didn't ask him about it. (laughs) Ricky, there are a couple clips that we have from interviews your students did that I'd like you to introduce and give us a little background on. One is called The Goose Chase, and the other is about a woman who may have been buried alive. Yes. uh, The the one about the goose chase is fairly recent, and uh, the student whose name was Christy. I've forgotten her last name, but she was from far southwest Virginia. She immediately thought of her grandfather, who was a good storyteller, and she interviewed the grandfather and um, included that story about the about the goose chase, which is just, you can almost picture the thing. It's just it's just an outrageous tale. One time, we got down to that Montole, and there was a goose on the side of the bank. We didn't see geese very often. But that thing was trying to run and couldn't, couldn't fly. So we pulled in there. We figured we'd get that goose and cook it. 
We chased that thing for 30 minutes in there. Finally, I called it and I drug it back out to the bank where the boat was at. And it bit me. It jerked a big blood militia right above my left tit. And I finally got it off of me and Grant Ernie grabbed it. And it bit him on the arm and it crapped down his leg. He had them white football pants on. He had a big green streak down his leg. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll, let me add one thing about the, the the goose story. The boat that they were floating down the stream in, they had made out of a car hood. Or actually, they had gotten two car hoods from the same model of car and 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 fastened them end to end so that one hood was the prow and the other end was the, the back of the boat, although you couldn't tell which end was which. So, so there's a whole story about that, about the waterworthiness of the boat that they were piloting down the river. The other story was one of the best students I ever had, and she interviewed a married couple. He was telling a story that he had heard as a young man, and an interesting note about that, he says at the beginning, this, he says, I don't think this story is a story, something like that. And what he means is that, uh, and as I grew up, a story is a lie. And I once interviewed a woman uh, for, for, for the project that I did in 1985. I interviewed a woman who owned the store. And I said, do you know any stories about whatever? And she said to me in, in, a, in a not a too friendly way, she said, well, I don't follow stories. <laughs> and, and follow meaning listen to or perpetuate. A story meaning something that's not true. And I kind of offended her by asking for a story. Uh, so this man is saying, this is a story, but it's, it's not a story. It's, it's, it's true. And he told it as, as a, something that really happened. I don't think this was a story. I think this was a, it was a true story. Back then, they called it, I don't know if it was something like the Asiatic flu. People take it, and they just go into a coma. And uh, so this lady passed away, and he milked uh, the lady's coffin. And they burned Some means or another, these people come back maybe a year or less is going to have removed from that cemetery. And see, back then it was a wooden coffin, a wooden box with no vaults. And when they took the top, she had turned over. But what happened, they think maybe at the time this lady had just went into a coma and they thought she's dead and buried her alive. Now that was, that's about the, I guess, uh, amazing story that I'd ever heard in my life, you know, and it always stuck with me. And and one more reason to to save those is the uh, the wonderful. I love to hear that man talk. That his his I think he grew up in East Tennessee, but that is so familiar to me. And uh, there will come a time when linguists may need to to listen to these, to hear people in a, in a natural setting, speaking in a way that's comfortable, comfortable not, not polishing it up for the, the tax collector or, or, or whomever that they might feel the need to impress with, with uh, adapting their, their language to the standard. Both of you had experiences where students in your classes from Appalachia, from the region, felt so self-conscious about their own accents that they were reluctant to speak up and were later so encouraged by the Appalachian folklore class that they actually became proud of their accents or proud of their culture. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, one of the things that I always tried to, um, to impress my students with was that their accent, their dialect is their own, and they should keep it. They should not feel compelled to have to change it. But, of course, quite a few students who came into the Appalachian courses who were from southwest Virginia had marked accents, uh, dialects that may have been different from a great many of the other students that were in school with them. So one one young man in particular that I recall came to me at the end of the class he had taken, 
And he said, I just want you to know that I think this class has saved my college career because I believe I would have dropped out if I hadn't had this class and had the encouragement to uh, honor my own speech patterns from my past. And so I felt very rewarded about that. And of course, he was not the only one. There were others who also expressed a similar point of view. Uh, I think it's just the fact that they learned that their speech was part of their history that was valuable and worth saving and was part of them. And therefore, it was a great lesson and a great reward for me. Ricky and Grace, this has been a delight. Thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you very much. Oh, it was a, uh, our pleasure. We are delighted to have a chance to share this work that we put a lot of our lives into. Grace Tony Edwards is a professor emerita of Appalachian Studies and English at Radford University. Ricky Cox is a musician and a retired English instructor at Radford University. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his disabled younger brother Robert. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. We had production help this week from Carice Luck Bremer and Jenny Taylor. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.